Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're bringing you my conversation with John Medved, founder and CEO of Our Crowd in Israel. We're going to talk about how Our Crowd is democratizing venture investing for investments and investors globally. The biggest theme, or so what, I hope you take away from this conversation is this, the uniqueness of startup nation, Israel. There's a different mindset taught in Israel. They learn not to be afraid to fail, to take risks reasonably, and ultimately be mission-driven and just get stuff done. Please enjoy my conversation with John Medved. John Medved is a serial entrepreneur and, according to the Washington Post, one of Israel's leading high-tech venture capitalists. In the 2008 New York Times supplement, Israel at 60, John was named one of the top 10 most influential Americans who have impacted Israel. John is the founder and CEO of Our Crowd, the world's largest equity crowdfunding platform for accredited investors, which has raised more than a billion dollars for over 170 companies since its launch in February 2013. In the best-selling book, Startup Nation, the authors describe John Medved as one of Israel's legendary business ambassadors who has taken on that role that in any other country would typically belong to the local chamber of commerce, minister of trade, or foreign secretary. Prior to our crowd, John was general partner of Israeli Seed Partners. John was raised in San Diego, California, where his father, David Medved, is a Navy veteran and scientist and also worked for NASA. John attended UC Berkeley in Berkeley, California. John, welcome to Fast Frontiers. It's great to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is so good to catch up. We caught up recently. We met three or so years ago when I was at Centrifuge, and I was fortunate to, um, well, two things. One, uh, convince you to come to Cincinnati and present at the annual meeting there where you just knocked people's socks off. They couldn't believe what I heard afterwards was, how did we get John Medved to come to Cincinnati? So... (laughs) I'm looking forward to going back. As soon as this pandemic just chills a little bit more, I'll be back in the heartland for sure. Good. We'd love to have you. I also got to attend your Global Investor Summit, which was way more impressive, actually. Uh, You had, how many did you have at your last summit? We had 23,000 registered. We couldn't fit them all in the Holy building. Holy smokes. About half of these guys were logging on from, you know, 183 countries. But it's it's really the biggest kind of conference of its kind. We got it in right under the wire there in February. Didn't infect anybody. And we're hoping, you know, this coming year, we're probably going to schedule it a little bit later, probably more towards May and June hope for the best that things are really under control then with a vaccine. But if not, we'll just stay virtual until we can get back and hug each other. And, and, and uh, I mean, there's something, you know, face-to-face is a lot better than mask-to-mask, okay? And uh, we want to go back face-to-face, but, but when there's no need for masks, okay, when the, this thing is under control. Yeah, that would be great. I'll have to make sure it's on my calendar. I'd love to attend. I remember going to, I think it was, the, was it the night before you have your LP meeting? Yeah, I walked in the hall and John Medved opens his arms and gives me a big hug when I walked in. And I always tell people that story. I mean, that's, you know, they, this business is all about relationships, trusted relationships. We invest in companies for usually at least six to seven years, if not 10 or more. And it, it's very important to know who you're investing with. Amen to that. I mean, that's actually one of the 
piece of advice that I give entrepreneurs pretty regularly, which is you should be doing as much diligence on your investors as they do on you. Usually the entrepreneur, when he gets a term sheet and investor says they're going to invest X million dollars in his company, he's so over the moon, he doesn't really think about, well, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, Where is he coming from? What's it going to be like to work with him for years and years and years? And that's really important. And uh, I think you hit it right on the nail, Tim, that this business is a people business. When things go right, it's about people. When they go wrong, it's unfortunately about people. Right. So you gotta, you know, it's fun to work with people you like and trust. Yes, let's hope so. First of all, to kind of set the stage, can you share just the the origin of the idea for our crowd and the journey from you know 2013 to now? So look, I, I uh, I've been involved actually for about four decades in building startups, funding them, helping them grow. Started with my late father, uh, Dr. David Medved. We had a company together which pioneered fiber optic transmission systems back in the 80s. We sold it to another good Midwestern company called Amico, whose technology division was headquartered in Naperville, Illinois. Once that got done, then I moved back to Israel where I got involved in a software startup called Accent Software. I took it public uh, in New York. And then I built one of Israel's first venture capital funds uh, called Israel Seed Partners. And started with a couple million dollars in my basement. And we grew that to be over a quarter billion of funds under management. So, you know, then I did another startup. And basically after taking that company, which was called uh, Vringo Public in New York again, I went on a speaking tour. Along the way, I had become sort of, as you mentioned in the intro, an unofficial spokesman for the Israeli you know, tech ecosystem, for the startup nation, as it were. And this time when I was on the speaking tour in 2012, the response was totally different. People were pushing in my hands business cards, and usually they'd say something like, okay, I'm sold. I want to get into a deal. And they knew that they couldn't call their broker at Goldman or Merrill Lynch or wherever they had you know, their account and say, buy me a startup, because it doesn't work that way. And most of these people, frankly, weren't venture capital class investors, right? Because most venture funds typically have a $5 million minimum, and that really doesn't work for most folks, even most rich folks. I had this idea with all these cards, you know, sort of piling up. My wife forced me to put them in a shoebox and one shoebox begat another shoebox. As soon as having this wall of shoeboxes and business cards. And I, I said, you know, maybe what we can do is we can offer these guys venture capital investments, investments that, you know, me and my team pick and curate and diligence. We'll put our own money in. We'll manage them, right? In other words, we'll manage the investment that is, not the companies, but we'll sit on boards and, you know, report. And we'll let these, you know, folks invest at starting $10,000 per deal. And the first reaction I got when I started socializing this idea to a bunch of my friends, several of them were lawyers. They said, Medved, we love you dearly, but you ever heard of a place called Leavenworth? I said, yeah, that's a federal penitentiary. He goes, yeah. You better get more familiar with it because if you do this thing, you're you're headed there. We'll bring you some kosher food. <laughs> and I said, you know what? And they said, no, you can't. You can't offer private companies to investors online. That's 
that's not legal. And I said, but wait a minute, venture capital is legal, right? Venture capital, you're allowed to basically, if we didn't invest in private companies, how would you ever get anything public, right? And so that's how the journey began. It started in 2012, 2013. We launched our first deals. It turns out I was right. It was legal because what we're doing is we're, we're simply offering venture capital investments to accredited investors. In the U.S., in order to participate in our crowd or platforms like us, you have to have a million dollars of net worth outside of your primary dwelling or a $200,000 annual income. And it turns out there are 14 million households in America that meet that requirement, hmm. except that of that group of, you know, frankly, rich people, but a lot of them, less than 1% have ever made a venture capital investment. So that's where I figured we might have some product market fit. And now you look, you know, forward to where we are and just to update some of the numbers you gave, we're at about a billion point five of, uh, you know, wow. committed funds. We've made 220 individual venture investments where the minimums, you know, that someone can come in is $10,000. Uh, last week, we closed a $12 million check from a single investor who wanted to invest in one of our companies. And then we have also 22 funds where, you know, we choose the, the portfolios and, and put them together. And then investors can invest in those funds, not with a $5 million minimum, but with a $50,000 minimum. So it's a lot more accessible. So, so the first thing I noted, first rule of thumb, this could apply to any entrepreneur, is, is uh, we'll now dub it the shoebox rule. Until you, <laughs> until you can fill a shoebox with business cards of people that say they want to buy what you have, what you're selling, like don't start the business. Yeah, right. But the, the most important thing is take those out of the shoebox and scan them and get them into Outlook or get them into your, your database so you can start using all these modern tools, which we've done. I mean, look, it's been a great run. And, and we were right. It turns out that rather than the SEC be our enemy, God forbid, they're our friend, right? You know, if you look at the current chairman, Jay Clayton, he's talking about how important it is to democratize access to the private market asset class, right? In other words, he feels that because so much money is being made in these venture capital investments before the companies go public, that it's absolutely critical that the SEC and the regulatory environment encourage capital formation and participation. Now, they want to obviously protect investor rights and make sure that people aren't taken advantage of. And one of the great things about public markets is the disclosure and the transparency and all of that. And, and private companies aren't ready for that yet. But on the other hand, you got to give people a chance to invest in these private companies because today, almost all the value is being sucked out or not all of it, but a, you know, majority of the value is being sucked out before they go public. You know, there are 500 unicorns out there. These are companies that have a billion dollars of market cap and they're not on a market, you know, <laughs> they're, they're pre-market. And so you look at a company like Uber and there might've been lots of people, you know, who were excited about that IPO, but that IPO was up at tens of billions of dollars. Okay, I think it was, no, it was north of 50, probably close to 70, okay? You know, and what, what the smart investor should have been asking is, how come I didn't get a shot at Uber at the $10 million, you know, valuation when it was just, and the answer was, because you're not a connected guy in Silicon well, Valley. And even more than that, in case any listeners don't understand how venture funds work, 
venture funds ma managers are regulated to a limited number of investors, 99 entities, right? So one of the reasons the, the small check can't get in a venture fund is just because it's it venture funds can't have that many investors. They're limited. So of course they're going to take people that can write a bigger check, right? Yeah, they're so, limited. And, and there's also issues in how today, for example, they've changed the regs to allow you to do what's called public solicitation, where you can actually take a billboard up, you know, either in Route 101 in, in Silicon Valley or on Route 128 in Boston or the equivalent in Cincinnati and Ohio. And you can say, hey, invest in Joe's startup. That's completely legitimate today. But what you're required to do then is to actually then, you know, do some diligence on the investor to make sure that they are indeed accredited. And so you need either to get a letter from their accountant or their lawyer, you know, you have to exercise some kind of caution. Whereas in the old days, when you couldn't solicit publicly, the investor could just, you know, attest, checks a box, says, hey, I got the million bucks, so let me in. But today on a platform like ours, we actually go, you know, go through a KYC, AML, uh, know your client, uh, anti-money laundering, as well as this accreditation process. So it's a no, new world out there. We got 60,000 people signed up on our platform from all over the world. And these are all accredited investors. And unlike a blind pool, they get to select company by company, which yeah, ones they, they were able to get into Beyond Meat before it went public. And that's cool because the idea is don't just, you know, let everybody into the sort of mediocre deals, but give people access to the best deals. And so Beyond Meat, for example, you know, was the best performing IPO, I think, of the last two decades. You know, it's, it went from about a billion dollar market cap to, you know, north of 10. It goes, bounces all over the place. But it's been tremendous, you know, in just a couple of uh, uh, months, you know, uh, less than two years public, we were in there as a private investor before it went public. Okay, so how cool is that, that an individual, you know, in Youngstown could put 10 grand into Beyond Meat on the same terms at the same price as Bill Gates, who also invested in the same round that we did. And that's about democratization, you know, of the asset class. And it's not, some might think that when you say, oh, smaller investor, smaller check size, that means seed stage, but but they're not, right? So what's the distribution of stage for our crowd? So our, our sweet spot is, is series A, which is, you know, you start with seed, and then you go to A and B and C. But we invest all the way up to pre-IPO. When we got to beyond, it was, you know, pretty much at, at that billion dollar valuation, okay? And I remember we had a huge debate in the, you know, and said, okay, sure, Medved, we understand that we want to be what's called stage agnostic, right? We want to both invest early stage all the way up to the later stage, as long as it's private. But a billion dollar valuation, really, we're going to, you know, that'll be our entry point. I'm sure we'd like to get there at the end. But what happened is I had actually eaten those burgers on vacation in Jackson <laughs> Hole. Okay. And, my, and more importantly, my wife and my kids ate the burgers and we were major fans. So that was perhaps you know, one of the more important diligence points there, which you got to trust your gut, okay? <laughs> you got to trust your Literally gut. your gut. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's great. How does your, how does your back office work or your, your staff that does the due diligence and uh, before you recommend or put a company on your platform, how does that work? Here in Israel, 
we have a pretty unfair advantage in terms of diligence because everybody knows each other. I've said that we've been very invasive in terms of our investigation. We, 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 we basically, you know, really want to know as much as we can before we pull the trigger. We want to call customers. We want to call people you, the team worked with. We want to understand the market. We want to look at the competition. You know, we want to understand, you know, what the product market fit is. Okay, what are the obstacles to manufacturing? Is the business model make sense? So we're, you know, checking boxes and looking and interviewing, doing all that stuff. And then we finally get to the, the price setting, right? Because unfortunately, we don't have a market here, which is setting prices every minute or every second. You know, we got to go there and say, okay, what's this darn thing worth? And then you, that's really where the, you know, the artisan, you know, or the, the artistry, if you will, in this kind of business, you know, turns up because it's one thing when the company has already product sales and you can, you know, examine their uh, P&L profit and loss statements and look at their balance sheet and, you know, run all kinds of financial calculations. What if the darn thing doesn't have the product yet? You know, they're asking you, give me the money and I'll build it. So there, you know, you've got a real job to figure out how to price it. And, the, and that's a, you know, it's quite a process to train somebody how to do it. I had a mentor early on who told me, he said, look, you know, uh, John, you should be aware that this business that you're getting into is probably the most expensive training program in the world. I said, what do you mean? You know, I, I didn't go to Harvard or Stanford and I know they have high, you know, tuitions. He goes, nah, forget the tuition at these Ivy League schools. I'm talking real, real, you know, uh, dinero, real money. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, my estimate is it costs about 25 to $50 million to train a venture capitalist. And I said, based on what? He goes, that's what you're going to lose before you figure out this whole thing out. <laughs> totally, totally agree. <laughs> Let's hope not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it gets to another issue that, well, first of all, setting the stage and geographically, you're global. So what's the distribution geographically for our crowd? So right now, a little over 50% of our deals are from Israel, which we, we're very proud of and we want to continue a strong core out of Israel. Over 40% are already in the US and the balance, you know, less than 10% are in the rest of the world, Asia, Europe, whatnot. We are totally global because our investor base is global. And, you know, we want to have a big funnel. So we get sourced deals from a variety of different, you know, inputs. One is CEOs of our companies, you know, entrepreneurs talk to other entrepreneurs and recommend good investors. But another really important source for us is our investor base. So the people who are investing on our platform are bringing us their deals because these are angels and people who are investing. Another big source, of course, is other venture capitalists, right? We've been sourcing each other deals. I'm excited about some of those deals we're, we're looking at in your portfolio. I think we're, we're already with one down and more to go together. And, and, and that's, you know, that's a, a good way of doing it. But we're global, both in the investor base and the companies. We, I believe strongly that the future of this industry is, is away from the sort of centralization represented by the dominance of Silicon Valley. I love the Valley. Okay, I grew up and was raised in California, went to school, you know, across the Bay in Berkeley. But it's really important to realize that innovation is going to come from all over. I think that what you're doing, you know, in the great American heartland 
is so important because there's so many smart people and so many smart ideas and so many great universities and people involved in the armed forces and people who come out of great companies, okay, who have real experience. And there's just been an imbalance of capital, right? In other words, all the capital was concentrated in the Valley. There used to be famously, I won't mention his name, but one of the leading venture capitalists said, heck, if I can't ride my bike to a deal, I'm not doing it. I remember that. I remember those days, right? If it's yeah, more than 20 minutes to go to a board meeting, I'm not investing. Yeah. And, and by the way, look, we, we have an unbelievable company that started in Cleveland. That is some Israeli, it's a company called Surgical Theater, who are some Israeli flight simulation guys who teamed up with a U.S. brain surgeon from Case. And they have built the most amazing 3D simulation company for surgery of all kinds. It's really on fire. Wonderful company. And I remember I asked these guys when we started looking at the company, I said, so how come we're getting a shot, right? Because we're at that point, this is about six years ago when we were hardly, you know, a household name, certainly weren't managing a billion and a half of assets or 200 companies. And they're giving us a, a real look at their company. It looks like they're going to take our money, which they ultimately did, thank God. And they said, well, you know, we've got a little bit of a problem. And I said, what, what's the problem? Because we talk to venture capitalists all the time. And they get really interested and excited about our story. At a certain point, we know this is going to happen. They say, wait, now, where are you guys based again? And they say, we're right outside of Cleveland. And they said, we could set our watches by the five-minute time limit that the rest of the call would last. Because these VCs, whether they were coming from Boston or coming from you know, uh, San Francisco, they just weren't about ready to make the schlep to Cleveland, okay? And it turns out that one of my staff members was from Cleveland, okay? And literally after the first two calls where we got excited, we put him on a plane, he was happy, went to Cleveland, made the investment, and uh, this company is, uh, has been a huge win for us and I think on to, to great things. Wow, and uh, along the lines of the, the investors in those venture firms, yeah, you know, we find out in the heartland, not many, not as many folks, family offices or high net worth folks are in venture for that same reason, right? They don't have the access. There's a investor accelerator called Generator, Madison, Wisconsin. And sure. a stat that they've uh, pointed out is that 47% of the investors in venture capital are coming from foundations and university endowments in the Midwest. Now, there you go. So a huge is, chunk of capital from the Midwest goes out to the coast and doesn't come back. So that's part of the inspiration for this podcast is that innovation's cropping up everywhere. And with the cloud and mobile, there really aren't any limits. You know, you, uh, just no, as you and I are just and, talking and, now. I mean, look, we're, we're invested in companies in Sweden, in the UK, in Germany. You know, we're looking in things in Italy and in Russia. And, and, and there are great universities, great people, and, and, and this entrepreneurial drive is, is pretty much the, I think, the most exciting thing going on today. You know, if you're a young person and, you know, you don't want to be a rock and roll star, I see, uh, you know, uh, Hendrix, uh, you have, yeah, the guys who are on audio here have got to see Tim's, you know, uh, studio. He's got the coolest collection of guitars with the great picture of Hendrix on the right. But of course, He's from Ohio, which is where that rock and roll Hall of Fame is. So, you know, you got you to assume that. But if a kid doesn't want to be a rock and roll star or, you know, a football icon, you know, or maybe the president of the United States, then you want to be an entrepreneur. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the new right. cultural heroes. And, and probably the entrepreneur can do a lot more to, to change the world. I mean, I'll Absolutely. tell you, we got a company, by the way, Tim, that got to share with you, just went up on our platform literally today. Okay, and it's a great example of entrepreneurship having an impact. Okay, because I, I really think that we don't give enough attention mm. to the fact that the guys who are and the gals who are building these companies are are not just making money for themselves and for their investors, but in many cases they're solving real problems for the world. So we've got this company called Blue Green Technologies, who are fighting toxic algal blooms. Okay, which if you're a fisherman or you spend time uh, around lakes, then you know that this horrible toxic, you know, algal bloom stuff is 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 killing the wildlife and killing people. Turns out that about two billion people's water supplies are potentially being affected because this this stuff looks like algae. It's actually bacteria and it's poisonous. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there were these uh, elephants, 300 of them, who died in Botswana because their watering hole had you know this toxic uh, algal wow. bloom. So this is a company out of Israel who invented a way to nano encapsulate a uh, a chemical which kills the this uh, uh, bacteria. And the problem with all uh, uses of the chemical in the past was that it would sink. Okay, you just dump it into the lake, it would go into the sediment. These guys figured out how to essentially package it in a way that it floats because that's where the bacteria floats. And so you don't have to use hardly any. And it literally causes this bacteria to go through mass suicide. So uh, in the last couple of weeks, if you you know just Google it, you'll see that they're in the process of saving Lake O, which is Lake Okeechobee in Florida. Wow. Okay, where because of all the the rains you guys have been having in the states, you know the water levels are high, and they've got to release water into these estuaries and causeway, you know the channels and whatnot. And they're afraid that it's it's going to be infected water. So they called Israel. The governor of Florida, DeSantis, had met this company on a mission to Israel. And he remembered and said, okay, get those guys in here. And they're literally working around the clock, 24-7, and they are saving this water. And they sent me this video with pictures of American and Israeli flags flying. And I said, how good is this? Okay, I mean, this is nanotechnology, saving water, saving ultimately people's lives and wildlife, making money because we're investing and we're going to do amazing with this company, stressing that partnership between Israel and America, which is unshakable and incredible. And I said, you know, God bless. This is just, this is just a wonderful thing. Sometimes you have moments like this in this job because you got to face it, you know, we are blessed to have the best job to sit and listen to people tell you their tell you their dreams and you have a chance to help make them come true doesn't get better than that i agree 100 percent. so you've talked a lot about the benefits to the investors can you share a little bit about the benefits to the entrepreneurs you know uh, why should they consider our crowd versus the more traditional venture fund so Look, the first of all, they should do traditional venture funds and our crowd. You know, we believe in a big open tent, okay? And, you know, we're not displacing or replacing, God forbid, any uh, traditional venture fund. We work with them all the time. 
But the reason that we get into these good deals is because number one, you now get access to this 60,000 accredited investor pool. And it's not just these guys like to write checks, not once, but over and over again. So it turns out that our crowd is really good at following our bets, which is important for these entrepreneurs, right? Because when you raise money, it's unfortunately never a one-time deal, right? It's series seed, A, B, C. And what happens is that most venture funds poop out, right? Because they put together a small pool of capital or big pool, but they don't have enough reserves. And so they say, look, we've put our money to work. Good luck. Find other investors. At our crowd, it's bring it on because the more that you know you grow and you prove that your business is working, we got other investors who want to join the original few who are there and the original few want to double down or triple down or quadruple down, which is great. So that's one of the advantages. The other advantage is we make a lot of noise. And today, one of the challenges with these little companies is getting above the sort of background noise level so you can start getting your message across. We're also really good because of this mass of people in making connections. You know, there are others, but I think that, you know, we're, we're hardworking and I think it's, it's, it's fun to be part of our network. You get to meet people like you at our annual conference. We have a lot of partners. Wait, who and, were your, uh, name some of your biggest uh, corporate partners. I was impressed with that, that we're at your last conference. Look, I mean, you know, we've had consulting deals where we actually do innovation scouting for companies as diverse as Shell Oil or Hitachi or Honda Motors or Toyota Susho or Halma, you know, uh, we have a, you know, a whole array. We're partners with very big banks in the U.S. We have a partnership with Stiefel, who is the seventh largest broker dealer, million clients, 300 billion in assets, you know, and, the, and, and their clients, by the way, are now uh, getting access to our deal flow uh, through that partnership. We have a partnership with the second largest bank in Singapore, UOB, actually in Thailand with the you know Bangkok Bank, okay, with KEB HANA, the largest bank in Korea, uh, the largest bank in Australia, NAB, the National Bank of Australia. So it just goes on, you know. And now, of course, the the newest thing is what's going on in our part of the world with this new normalization deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. I just came back last week, I was in Dubai, and that is a whole new frontier for us. So, you know, when you think about what the world's gonna be like with the coming down of what I call the sand shutter, okay? It's sort of like the Middle East equivalent to the Berlin Wall, which is now down, yeah. and Arabs and Jews are getting together and not in conflict, but in partnership, okay? It's gonna be unbelievable. And that's a really cool thing. One of the other things I was super impressed with, I hope you'd share with others is, you know, it was all captured in the book, Startup Nation, which you know very well, and you know the authors very well, and you're part of that story. There's, I think so many regions around the world could learn from that. I mean, Israel and Startup Nation is probably the only other region in the world that comes close to the same level of success as Silicon Valley. Some of that is, is for reasons that are specific to Israel, Right. And your geography and, and, the, and the culture there, you know, the IDF, yeah, I think plays a big role in that, uh, which is great. And it's it came out in when was it? 2009. Nine, right. Can you describe a little bit of kind of the main themes of Startup Nation? And then if you would, 10, 12 years later now, what would you amend or what would you say are additional learnings since then? 
Look, the, the, the most important part of the whole startup nation thesis, if you will, is attitude towards risk, right? In other words, you, if you don't have a risk acceptance culture, it's going to be hard to build startups. If you have a culture where failure is really the end of the of the road for you as a person, you got to leave town, you're not going to do startups. There are certain cultures where the face you lose by, you know, losing is just unbearable. Whereas, you know, those of us who are in this startup game, you know, failure is part of the process. And it's not a question of, are you going to fail? At some point, we all fail, right? You don't can't make every investment work. You can't make every startup that you found work. And the question is, how do you fail? What do you learn from it? What do you do for your next act, et cetera? And, and in Israel, look, we, we had and still have a lot of risk existentially. Okay, you know, we're one of the few countries in the world where people are trying to develop nuclear weapons just over the horizon in order to wipe you out and talk about it openly. You know, they deny that anyone ever tried to wipe us out before, but they're going to do it this time. Okay, good luck with that. They're not going to. Okay, so, but we live with that. And, if, you know, you've been to Israel and you know that we're sort of fun loving. We're always up in the top 10 of the fun index of countries. we got great beaches and party scene and we're big family people. Our birth rate is, you know, through the roof. I mean, we're 3.1 kids per woman. Okay, our population is booming. It's kid town. Okay, and yet we live with risk, right? It's just part of our existence. And therefore, startups like, really, I'm going to be worried about like failing? Sorry, okay? You know, my kids are, 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 I have one kid who was an intelligence, another kid is a tank commander, another kid who was like a hurt locker group. That's real risk, okay? That's <laughs> startup stuff. That just doesn't, you know, compute, it doesn't correlate. So that's, I think, the, the heart of this. But it also includes immigrants, right? Turns out that the immigrant drive is a big part of startups. People who come from other countries to improve their lives often are risk takers and are people who work hard. In the U.S., you look at how many startups have been built by immigrants and they can be from anywhere. But like America has always been a beacon for immigrants, Israel too. Our people have come from all over the world, very multicultural, and that, that's a big part of it. On top of that, you mentioned the army. And uh, again, that's probably our, our special sauce because most people, I think, wrongly think that army is about discipline, about marching and saluting. In our, in our place, the army is about technology, okay? About, you know, using the most important, you know, technologies to save lives and to protect us. But we, we, we do a great job in the army because our kids are taught to ask questions, to work as teams, okay, to take risks reasonably, to lead, okay, to be mission-driven and get stuff done because, you know, people's lives depend on it. So a lot of our entrepreneurs came out of leadership roles in the army or these technology units that are busy tracking bad guys or, you know, trying to protect our networks and, you know, whatnot. And you get this thing where, where basically the kids here, what they talk about is startups. And they all assume that, that they're going to either work for one or start one. And even if they're, you know, going to be for a decade or two, a school teacher 
they're going to go off to a startup and guys who are in startups go back and be school teachers. We've got, we got one startup, which is in the medical area where the founder was a guy who was eight years in one of these intelligence units was a computer programmer working on cyber security. <clears throat> he then, after eight years in the army, changed gears and went to medical school, if you can believe, became a really strong doctor, rose to be the deputy head of internal medicine at Israel's largest hospital. And then he decided he was gonna use artificial intelligence to write software in order to prevent doctors from making prescription mistakes. Because in field trials at Harvard, they found that 5% of the prescriptions were wrong. Okay, you know, and uh, that company is called Metaware, right? But you get these guys who are like warrior geeks, okay, who are both doctors and cybersecurity experts. And that's, again, a very special sort of Israeli mix. I'm a big believer, you know, success begets success. So they're all learning from each other in close proximity. Building this community together, I think that will encourage those places that haven't had the sort of blessings, you know, of entrepreneurial explosion like Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv to really, you know, participate. And I think that will only increase. So start building the digital or virtual bridges, not just the physical bridges. Well, thank you, John. That Those are some terrific insights. Uh, this is a great conversation. I'm sure we could go on for another hour or so. Any <laughs> other final any other final words of wisdom for people thinking about the next frontier? So look, I, I think that people have to realize that the business that we're in in terms of venture capital and picking startups is not a business for next week or next month or even next year. It's a it's a really almost a generational thing. I mean, our time horizon on investment typically starts with three years, can be as long as 10, sometimes it goes longer, okay? And so you gotta be patient and you gotta you know, do things smartly. You gotta build portfolios, right? Not just take one shot on goal because people even, you know, Pele misses, you know, one shot. But if you get 10 shots, you're gonna get some goals. And in our cases, these goals are typically, you know, not just paying you back a buck for a buck, but hopefully a multiple. We're always looking for that 10X or, God willing, even a 50 or 100x. So, and also you've got to be smart about timing, about realizing that sometimes things look gloomy and dark and it ain't that way, okay? I mean, right now, for example, there are a lot of people suffering out there, a lot of people unemployed. There are a lot of industries which are reeling, whether it's, you know, leisure and hospitality or aviation or commercial real estate, you know, retail and physical world hard businesses, but there are a lot of businesses that are really taking off, you know, and the digital economy is going through a huge transformation. And that's why their stocks are up. That's why these big tech companies are just, you know, roaring at the moment. And so as an investor, you got to be aware of that and say, you know what, we're in the pandemic, but there are some really interesting opportunities with you know, funds like Refinery or platforms like Rcrowd, where you can really, I think, score big in this period of time. History has shown that in these downturns, great companies are built because we're all being tested now. And hopefully when we get out of this, and we will get out of this, and technology will be a big part of it, things are gonna go back to roaring and we're gonna make money and we're gonna you know, tackle these challenges 
that are facing us all. It's a pleasure, Tim, really. Congratulations on what you're doing. We look forward to growing our partnership with you. Thank you, John. Thanks for taking the time with us and, and good luck to you as well. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our second season of Fast Frontiers. We appreciate our listeners for their continued support through your emails, reviews, and sharing it with friends and colleagues. It reinforces for us why we put out Fast Frontiers. We continue to have an amazing time connecting with new and old friends to bring you great conversations about accelerating innovation in unexpected places. We will be back for season three shortly. Thank you again. We'll see you back here soon.